I'm at the Hamilton East Library in downtown Fishers in the Ignite space, uh, the AV studio there. It's all uh, available for you if you have a library card. There's plenty to do here. If you've never been to the Ignite space, uh, come down here and just uh, get one of the librarians to talk to you, and they'll be glad to give you a tour. It's great to have Mike Fossil back on the podcast, a longtime teacher at Fisher's High School. And, Mike, you are recently retired. We're coming up to the first part of August, and you are not planning for another school year. How does that feel? I will tell you, it. it <clears throat> I haven't really thought about it. Because I had knee replacement surgery, I've been kind of geared that way. But I'm also not a, I don't know, a nostalgic-looking person. I've got things that I'm working on. I'm getting ready to have my first grandchild in seven weeks and those type of things. And I find that I'm not really like thinking I'm missing out on something. I don't feel like I should be doing this. I don't feel this at all. I, I have never been much of a look back person. I just move on to the next thing and I'm moving on to the next thing. Well, the next thing uh, that's most important now is being a grandfather. Absolutely, I can tell you that. I've got uh, two. I'm very fortunate. I got two grandchildren that I get to see. They live in another state, unfortunately, but I do get a chance to see them quite often. And you'll find that's going to be the best role, most important role you've ever had. I want to go back a little bit. I know you don't like to do that, but I'm going to try. Um, you've essentially had two different careers, and you yes. and I, are, you and I are kind of the same because I had the same sort of situation. Uh, the first career you had was in the armed forces. So explain what you did during your military career. All right. I, I joined the Air Force in 1977 and, and would retire with 18 years and something when they offered an early retirement. Uh, I had a wide variety of jobs. In the very first job station at Cannon Air Force Base, New Mexico, for which was a culture shock for someone from northern Maine, uh, I actually was a casualty affairs officer and well, not an officer, but what I did was I was the person who did the administrative stuff when you made death notifications. Make sure you apply for benefits, those type of things. Uh, work with the family. So I did 18 of those notifications in about four years. I was also what they called an Air Force Assistance Fund uh, liaison. So I gave emergency loans like the Red Cross. The Air Force has its own version of that. Uh, then I left there, um, moved out to New Hampshire, worked in kind of the – military equivalent of human resources in what they called the outbound assignments. So help people transition to their next assignment. Then I went to California. There um, I worked in a variety of jobs, assignments once again, but then I ended up becoming the um, non-commissioned officer in charge of the consolidated base personnel office. And then I went from there and then I got on the headquarters track. And when I got on the headquarters track uh, down in San Antonio at the Air Force Military Personnel Center, uh, I became a computer systems analyst and basically designed the, uh, at that time, the Air Force's pipeline management system and did the transition from Burroughs to Honeywell, coding in COBOL 74 and Algol and that kind of stuff. Then left there, went to Air Force Space Command and was did a computer installation as we dis decentralized kind of like computer systems. Then ended up in here. It at Fort Benjamin Harrison in an Air Force element where we stood up an Air Force element at the Defense Finance Accounting Service, and then I retired. Well, you know, my dad, he, he uh, enlisted in the military in the late 40s, couldn't get through uh, 
boot camp because he got very sick and, mm-hmm. and the military, they don't like to pay your medical bills. So nope. they just discharged him with the medical discharge. But he ended up being a civilian working uh, at the Army Finance Center for gosh, 40, 30, 40 years. He spent his, most of his adult life working there. So I have a lot of connections uh, to the military that way. And I, and I do note that I have seen you at a number of veterans uh, I should I put it veterans events that happen around Fisher. So you still have kept that connection going. I, you know, there's a there's a camaraderie that comes around people who speak the same language, and most people in the military speak the same language. They have the same experiences um, at the core. Now, uh, there are people that served in wars. I never served in a war, um, but the, one of the things that's common is was that that's different for most people is that when you join the military, for the most part, you give up your family that you grew up with for 18 years. For for me, uh, I was never stationed close to home, which means that um, once a year, once every other year, I would go home. And so you get disconnected from family. And I think that's something that most people in the military understand. Because of that, they form fast friendships and build groups that come like family substitutes, but then the military moves you every three years. So then you're constantly reforming it. So there's an impermanence to the relationships in the military. I mean, I have friends that uh, that I've talked to that I was stationed with twice, but it's just a couple. And, and I, it's not like I didn't have friends in the military. We just get, we move on, we get busy, and there's just that impermanence thing. And I think that language is something that most people in the military understand. I knew a few people who call themselves military brats. Right, they're brats. If you because uh, they they were in a family and they were moving every three mm-hmm. years. And you, I guess that, that creates a kind of vagabond kind of mentality. You don't feel like you're tied to one place because you're always moving. You get that mentality after a while. With all the time you spent in the military, uh, in today's world, today's armed forces, would you recommend a military career to a young person who might express an interest in that? I think the military is made for certain people. It was made for me. Uh, I was not a very good high school student. I grew up in a uh, family that no one had gone on. Most people didn't only even graduate high school in my family. So I had no idea how to go to college. I wasn't all that great of a student. I needed to grow up. And I'm from northern Maine in a kind of like a farming, logging community. Most people stay there and do that. But I didn't want to do that. And so for me, what the military offered was a way out of the rut that most of my family had gone through. Because most people that I, in my family, they stay within 10 miles of where they grew up. And that's what they know. And I didn't want to do that. But I didn't know how to get out short of that. Because that's not like I had any skill other than knocking down a tree and working on a potato farm. And so I think there are a lot of people who kind of fit between things. They they don't necessarily want to go to college. They don't even know what they want to major in or maybe they don't have this maturity yet to do that. And they they need something to kind of grow into that has a lot more structure. And that was me. In the military, I think there's a high need for that outlet. The military also changed me. It changed how I – thought, it changed the way I viewed the world. It gave me the skills, these soft transferable skills that later on I would take with me and I still use them. Well, speaking of that, let's move on to your second career and that's that as a, a classroom teacher. Uh, 
I like to ask you what just what drew you to teaching in a classroom. Well, that's really a good question um, because because I of my time working in San Antonio, there was a lot of thought that I would go back into the systems world. I had a, I had a very narrow expertise. Um, the military still co- codes in COBOL 74, which is a 60s language. There are still places that have that language. Um, I received you know, accolades for what I did. So I was fairly well known in that systems world. And so when I was retired, there was noise back from San Antonio for me to go kind of go back and do that. And I thought about it. But while um, I had success doing it, I didn't really like it. And so my wife, Laurel, and I were sitting out one day. She goes, well, what do you like to do? And what I've always liked to do was, when I was in the military, was to teach um, kids basically how to be a programmer analyst, how to develop that kind of analytical thinking. Yeah, there were times I had more than a few people working for me, and I would – I like to kind of like teach young kids on how to find their footing and to move forward and gain a skill. And I said, I, I like to teach, but I didn't know how to do that. So I just started taking college classes. Uh, I never really applied to college until uh, it was time to student teach. And, you know, in the 90s, you had a course catalog. They tell you what you needed. So I was just taking classes at IUPUI, and, and I was off my little Excel checklist, that, making sure. And I went to them and said, "Okay, I need a student teacher." They were like, "You're not even a full time student here." <laughs> and I went, "Well, I take a lot of classes with you guys." And so I applied for college, and then, you know, student taught, and I student taught at the old Hanlon Southeastern, you know, junior high the, back in the day, with a guy named Mac Dewis, and it was just. Funny, my wife and I were going to move back to Colorado, where she's from, and I decided that I was going to stay here. But I didn't have a – like I didn't go into teaching because I had this like lifetime dream of doing it. I just enjoyed teaching people a skill, and it translated. And I, I must tell you, when I ended up in the civil service, I, must, I worked in broadcasting for about 14 years and went into civil service, and I ended up teaching adults which is an entirely different mm-hmm. thing. Internally, a lot of classes, and then I also ended up teaching uh, professionals outside of government, and, and, and uh, that was a different experience. In fact, after I retired, I did that about five years for Indiana University. But I want to ask you about your experience teaching students. How many years did you teach students? 26. Here? So after 26 years of doing that, uh, did you notice any change in the students you were seeing coming in and out? What what changes did you see yourself? I, I It's funny. I get asked this question a lot. It, it almost always starts out with the words, kids today or students today. Um, and I don't think there's any difference between the students I started with and the students I ended with. What's different is, is the way unfiltered content comes to them. When, we, when I started 26 years ago, the unfiltered content Content was was narrow. You didn't you didn't have that. Maybe late night television, or maybe you know sneaking onto the HBO after nine o'clock. But students today, you go into an elementary school, they got a smartphone in their hand, and you know well, I have good parents out there that try to put on, you know, controls for those type of things. But you know these kids are smart. They go out to YouTube. They figure out how to get around that kind of stuff. And they have access to unfiltered content. And you see it. Um, You see it in attention span and those type of things. You know, kids, 
you know, walking in the hallway, scrolling. Yeah, through TikTok, they, they, they get unfiltered information 10, 15 seconds at a time. I think the raw material of children has not changed. And I, and I, and I, look, at some of, I look at some of my early students and I look at some of my later students and I have superstar students, you know, in all of the time frame. But what I do see the differences is the effect, the effects of that unfiltered content. You know, I, I had to deal with my mother's estate recently, and uh, I was dealing with a banker, and he was a young fellow uh, in his twenties, but you know, college graduate for several years, and he he just asked, and I mentioned I write a news blog and that kind of thing. And he was very interested in that, and I, he just looked at me and said, "Well, you know, I get most of my news from TikTok." <laughs> that's a little troubling. That's I don't know about scary. You. Yeah, <laughs> that that's not where you should get your news. I mean, you, if you want to look at it, fine. But to say that's my news source, I that you know bells were going off in this guy's college grad and in a professional job. You know, COVID. I want to talk about that because that brought massive challenges to everybody in the teaching profession. I've talked to you about it. I know a lot of teachers. I have them in my family. And they all told me in a little bit different way how COVID made life almost impossible for them uh, uh, to be able to teach and, and to do teaching as they, they, were, they were trained to do it. Talk about why, from your point of view, um, those exper- what those experiences were for you, and th- not just yourself, but your colleagues and the stories you heard from them. Yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a very difficult time, um, you know, especially when we were – you know, because there were phases to it, right? Because um, when COVID began and we, you know, were in an, suddenly an online environment, I had COVID. And so I was sick. And so I was going on and recording, you know, the lesson every night. Um, I, I used to laugh with the kids and say, I'm not, you know, stuttering. I had to pause because I couldn't breathe for a minute and those type of things. And I would kick out assignments and then try to engage kids as much as possible, the same way I would in class. But there's a toll that happens because what that allowed, it allowed kids to check out. And even when we came back into, you know, a kind of a Zoom environment or like even alternating days at schools, it was, it was, it, it had an effect. Like my excellent students were still excellent. They weren't as good as they normally were because you didn't have as much time with them to help them grow. But they are still really good students. But my average students, my you know that middle block of kids, they suffered. And because where normally what I would be able to do is I'd, I've had a lot of success in my career of taking kids that were kind of in that middle spectrum and I could raise you know their skill level and things. And during COVID, that didn't happen very much. And as a matter of fact, in some of those kids, they regressed. But our kids that were not in that average are the kids that were the at-risk kids. They fell off the planet. And there's a toll to that. And there's a society toll to that because you can't lose years without some sort of recovery mechanism with that because success is is about the skills that are practiced and habits that are developed and those type of things. And those COVID years were tough. They were tough on math teachers. I thought that they suffered probably the most because the expectations for the math level, there wasn't like, you know, the math that they would take in their sophomore year suddenly became less of math. 
So there was such a preparation gap during those years, and you see it. But there was also what COVID did. We had kids that kind of before COVID, we always had a lot of kids come out for things, sports teams, clubs, you know, we the people tryouts, you know, those type of things. There would be a lot of that, you know, get involved in an activity in a group. Post-COVID, those numbers were down in our school and I assume in other places too. It was almost as if kids got their social interaction in that social media 10, 15-second shallow world rather than the effort it takes to interact with people. And I, I thought that was, for me, probably the hardest thing coming out of COVID. We talk a lot about remediation, and, and that is going on, and that does, on the academic side, you can try that, although it's a little troubling. HSC, from everything I've seen, all the remediation money that came in is being used for remediation, but we read reports where there are school districts or you know, building football stadiums with that money. It's, it's troubling to hear that. But, yeah. but what I'm hearing you say, it's more than just academic remediation Absolutely. that's going on here. Yeah, there's. it, it is funny because like even this year or even last year, it was a completely normal year school-wise. But at the very beginning of the year, my longtime teaching partner and I talked about is it's some of the societal norms in the classroom the kids didn't have. Because those kids hadn't had a normal school year, I think, since their third or fourth grade year. I can't remember. And then, But you look at it, it was such things like um, bringing paper to class, having a pencil, um, not talking when somebody else is talking. Uh, even the listening skills, I, I, I always I always like to have someone sum up somebody else's, you know, main point because it's one of the skills that I, I like in my class. But learning to attend somebody else's words, to evaluate it, listen carefully, those skills, woo, we had to teach those. And we were pretty successful, you know, team-wise. We were able, by the end of the year, we made huge gains. But that's remediation. Because in those remediation of those type of skills, you know, that takes away from academic time because you can't cut 42 minutes and make it longer. And so, you know, but those type of skills, those soft skills are just as important in some ways as hard skills. You know, well, you already mentioned We the People. For I'll give a shorthand for people who don't know what that is. It's basically a competition about civic knowledge. Uh, the students prepare a paper and answer questions. Uh, and uh, it's not the high school level. And you started the uh, program at, at Fisher's Junior High School. And I was very honored because you asked me to help out that mm -hmm. first team. And uh, they went on and won the national championship. I remember watching it online. It was so happy for you guys. And I still have that 2016-2017 team, the frame photograph that you gave me, signed by all the members of that team. I, I have it in my home office, and I, I really you know, feel that's, that's a treasured moment for me. But how did it feel when you took that first team to the national competition and won that? It was surreal. Now, um, I'd been involved in We the People at the high school level through Liz Paternoster's program. I was an advisor for her for years. Um, and when they finally – when Fisher's High School qualified the very first time for nationals, Liz was way pregnant. I mean like I she was – remember that? She was <laughs> due during competition. So I kind of went with them and when I – that experience, when I came back, I talked to my principal, Dr. Thorpe, and said – 
kids should have that experience. And so we had two teams, and we finished second both years to a very good Brown County team taught by Mike Potts, who's a fantastic teacher. Uh, but in that third year, when I, when you worked with me, that team, um, man, those kids, I just ran into them, yeah, three of them the other day, but uh, those kids bought in. They bought into the skills of what it takes to do with the people, the ability to analyze information, the ability to understand that you're wrong, the ability to accept the fact that you don't know everything, the ability to have to be able to public speak, you know, extemporaneously, those kinds of, they bought in. And by the time that we went to nationals, like I had no idea, I knew what high school looked like, but I didn't know what, I, so I prepped them like the high school, but I didn't know what the competition was going to be like at nationals. And, and, uh, I thought we were doing pretty good, and it turned out we really did. Uh, but the, it, that is one of um, – when I look back at it, and I'm not a big look-back person, but when I look back at it, that – when they mentioned our name, watching those kids just – the joy on their face. There's a picture that I have downstairs in my office of them kind of on stage. It is just joy personified. Uh, that – warms my heart every time. I can feel in the emotion. I can feel it like it was yesterday. And even though it's, you know, been eight years, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. I want to ask about something related to that, because uh, when these, when you have these students that come out of We the People, they, they have civic knowledge. You mm -hmm. have, that's the whole idea, you know, and, and you have to have a vast array of it to be prepared for the questions to come your way. Um, I think it's fair to say, from everything I have seen nationally, we've seen a drop in civic interest and activity in our nation uh, all the way down to our local area. We don't have very large turnouts for local elections, sometimes 12, 14 percent. That's registered voters. Right. Eligible voters are in the single digits with, with the turnout that we see. You are educating students about the importance uh, of civic knowledge and activity wherever they may end up living as adults. Yet we see this this voter turnout locally. I mean, what do you think we as a society need to do to reverse this trend? Well, I mean, that's a that's a common conversation, and I think and and I know you realize that's the reason I taught like an adult version of my class. I taught three classes, and you know, even those like 16, 20, 24 folks that did it, I just feel this need. Uh, to provide adult education. The problem is, is not everyone has the time for that, but not everyone has the interest in it. And it's the one thing about ignorance. Most of the time when people are ignorant about something, they don't realize they're ignorant about it. And, and so they don't see the cost of it. But we, you know, the, I mean, you're in the news world, you see the cost of it. There's, I mean, the ability to listen to something and evaluate it and be able to go, I don't know if that's true type of thing. And to be able to research or to have the historical background, the civic background to be able to, you know, go, yeah, that's probably not true. And that it's a critical thing. Um, I still think, you know, Indiana made a, you know, a decent first step to me by uh, starting next the second semester of next year in sixth grade, they're going to have to take a civics class. And yet, you know, in Indiana, ever since I've been in Indiana, has always had a requirement to take government in order to graduate. 
But that means that for most people, the highlight of their civic education happens when they're 18. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we need to do a better job to incentivize and flood civic knowledge to people. You know, I, I, I don't know the exact thing. I think it was in the early 70s. It was almost like uh, the every uh, TV station had to provide a certain amount of education for children. You know, and that gave us wonderful things. You know, it gave us Sesame Street. It gave us all those things geared. But I think that we need to have almost the same thing for adults. I'm I, you know, I'm torn whether or not to keep teaching my adult We the People class. Uh, there's a part of me that likes to. I get people that ask me about it, and there's I feel an obligation to help with the. And I, even though I know it sometimes it's just a drop in the bucket, the reality is is that could be an important drop. Um, but you're right about the turnout rates. The United States is abysmal when it comes to civic knowledge. I mean, look at any study. The Annenberg study is frightening. My kids would be able to tell you, but anyone who's in Unit 6, well, if I get this wrong, I will expect a, something from them. But I think it was like only 26% of adults in the poll that they did could name the three branches of government. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, and I'm, and I understand that you about the some people don't like memorization, but I think memorization is kind of a important thing, and of some things. And but that kind of stuff that scares me. No, I agree with that. And uh, there has to be some memorization in education. You know, you can't do math without it. You can't do certain. You know, I used to get upset about dates all the time when mm -hmm. I take a history class, and I finally had a history teacher who said, "You know, I this we're doing this for a reason. You're, you're memorizing a date, but you're putting it into a context mm -hmm. of history, and that's okay. that's the way he taught it. And I thought that was the right way. It wasn't just rote memorization; it's memorization with the, uh, a purpose behind it." In March of this year, you and I were among uh, several local people receiving a Jefferson Award. And uh, I was extremely honored because Jefferson Awards are given out based on a commitment you, a person has to public service. And the two of us are just two of a number of people who received that through the Students in Action Group here locally. We were both given a brief time to speak. And you were very kind in complimenting my news blog, which has been around now for 12 years. Um, tried to quit twice, and nobody would let me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've won some awards. When I was a journalist from making a living at it uh, up to the early 80s, I won one Associated Press Award, which was um, I was very proud of, and I won a number of awards in my civil service career. But that Jefferson Award was very special for me because it is honoring me for, for something that someone else perceives as, as a commitment to public service. And I know you feel the same way. It, it, it's interesting. I, I was torn on the award. I'm not much on awards. <clears throat> I was actually uh, more touched by the nomination considering who was that nominated because um, Maddie Collier, you know, former Weeple for me, Unit 6, Fantastic person, fantastic family. I cannot wait to see how she changes the world. You know, Casey Alexander's involved, and Casey was a unit, not a, sorry, was a team captain for me and We the People. I've watched him blossom uh, at the high school level. I, for, I forget 
you know, sometimes just how much he gets done. But, you know, seeing those kids that were we the people kids for me go on and do that kind of, you know, do a public service like that, man, that's everything to me. Um, but uh, the, the reason that I, you know, said something about you, I believe that one of the biggest um, deficits facing our country is the loss of the press. Um, <clears throat> the founders of our country uh, pointed that out. That's why the freedom of press is in the First Amendment, because the press plays this critical role of being the watchdogs on what happens by the powerful in, in the government. And with the demise of the press, that independent bulwark against you know kind of narratives that go on, I think it hurts us. I think um, the press is critical, and I think local press is critical. I because I you know like I believe all I mean I think the majority of politics it begins local. The involvement begins local. When people become involved locally, then they do the Dick Luger thing. You run for the school board. Next thing you know, you're the mayor. Then next thing you know, you're in the Senate, and then you're an esteemed member changing you know nuclear arms control thing. But you know um, having a local press. And then a big city press, those type of things, I think it's critical. I still maintain, you know, subscriptions to places um, online uh, simply because I want to do what I can to support the press. I think one of the the shifts that has affected us civic wise is that we have a, we have generations of people who are shifting from reading an, a opinion piece or reading a breaking news article to getting the synopsis, as you said, on TikTok. Mm -hmm. I look at the Indianapolis Star's investigation that broke open the gymnastics scandal. That's press at its finest to me. But if the press doesn't exist, does that ever get uncovered? It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, it doesn't. No. Somebody has to do that. And, and I think the best example recently has been the, the firing of the Northwestern University football mm -hmm. coach. And the university didn't do an investigation. Who investigated that? The student newspaper. Mm -hmm. During the summer months when they only had four or five people in the office. And they conducted that investigation themselves, talking to the football players, getting their sources together. Um, I, I heard a podcast where they were interviewed. It was an amazing story mm -hmm. how they did that. I think what really hit me. Mike was uh, my my parents are from a little town named Lagoda, Indiana, southwest part of the state, and a two or three thousand people population. It's a very rural area, and uh, the Lagoda Tribune was a weekly print newspaper that began right after the Civil War. That's when it began as a it closed two years ago, and you know we're seeing this local press. This is why I do what I do. Uh, I think that, you know, somebody has to show up at the meetings and tell people what's going on. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I heard someone say, I'm not saying this is happening here at all. I have no evidence of that. But there are places where it is probably the best time to be a corrupt local official because the media is not there to, to keep an eye on you. Right. Which is so, you know, I, I can't do investigative reporting. I'm one person. But uh, you're right. That The example of the Star investigation, which had major impact on our whole society, and gymnastics as a sport, which <laughs> once that was uncovered, we, we, we peeled back that layer and right. saw what was really going on. You know, I think America and Fisher's, they both face 
challenges in, in the year ahead. You know, when you look at everything in general, looking ahead, are you pessimistic or optimistic? Well, I'm not a pessimist by yeah. any level. If I was a pessimist, I wouldn't have taught, I wouldn't have started with the people. The optimist in me looks, I think that there's there are problems, you know, in our country today, in our local area today, but I felt that the more that I pushed kids with certain skills and um, certain, you know, kind of like passion for things that eventually I could tip, tip the tide at least at some level. And so, I mean, it, do I get disheartened? I get disheartened. I mean, I, you know, when you have elections that run on the, you know, the school systems failing. And meanwhile, I'm, you know, my kids won five national championships uh, at the national level uh, and lost twice to just, you know, I'll tell you, this year we finished second by one point. Mm-hmm. And the other time we finished second, we finished second by two points. And so it wasn't like, you know, it was, I mean, that's a rounding decision. It's a rounding error by, right. I mean, my gosh, I mean, if you know how that scored, and I'm right. a little familiar with that, that's, you're almost, you're really tied. <laughs> I mean, it's just, and, and, you know, we won by a little too, but, but hearing that, hearing a narrative that we're not doing well at the same time that we're doing really well, I don't look at my kids and I can't look at these kids that have performed so well and go, well, you're failing. They're not failing. You know, there are some things there. There were some challenges coming out. But those, if you want to milk statistics, milking statistics after COVID is probably not the time to do that. But, you know, my kids achieved. And you look at that and to, to sell a narrative that, that somehow that as a district are failing to – I just – that just bothers me. I'm going to get to something on that in a moment. Before I do that, this ties in with what you just said. There are teachers that are sadly leaving the profession. Absolutely. Uh, teachers are highly educated people. They have lots of other opportunities mm-hmm. to go into other lines of work. The education schools are seeing a dip in enrollments. And back to your previous uh, career, military enlistments are down. What do we, again, as a society, need to do to, to turn this around? Well, it, they're, they're like in the military numbers, you're talking war weary. I mean, it, the military is hard enough by itself. But um, until we left Afghanistan and until we left uh, uh, Iraq, I knew people that in their four years would spend two and a half years overseas without their families. Divorce rates, Scott, it's, that's hard. And so during a, a war, an extended war period of time like that where you know you're going to deploy without your family for long periods of time, uh, you could be back for six months and your unit gets deployed again, that's a, that's a pretty hard selling point. For someone, and you know they've they've done the monetary benefits, they've done the education benefits, but putting your family on hold, it's a hard sell. So you got people that go into the military, but it's in the military they they talk about the the critical first enlistment, because the first time that you reenlist, it for most people if they reenlist after their four year commitment, if that's what they have, if you get them in that second four years, you kind of get them. But those reenlistment numbers started cratering. 
And when that happens, you lose kind of that expertise and then your overall force that becomes harder. In teaching, it's a different thing. You know, the, um, I've talked to people who've left the, you know, talented teachers leave it five years. They leave it five years. The The work is hard. Um, when narratives become negative, the hard work sometimes becomes questionable whether or not it's worth it. Teaching kids, I mean, I will tell you, I never regretted a day teaching. I loved every Monday and I loved every Friday. Uh, I loved teaching. Um, but I'm pretty immune to those, you know, those outside voices I have tendency to hear. But, you know, the kids today, it, when people say, well, you're, they're only a teacher, you go on Indeed and look at the skills that teachers have. You can find jobs because I've seen people leave education and go into a corporate world making a ton more money without the negative narratives. That's, it's hard. We got to get them past 10 years. Yeah, if you want to really know about military, just Google stop loss. Right. And that will tell you yep. why that a lot of what you're describing has happened. I want to dovetail on something you've already alluded to. And here's something I have seen, and it, it concerns me. Again, I have teachers in my family. I, I've known a lot of teachers. I've covered education off and on for a lot of years. I've heard people in recent years particularly accuse teachers of indoctrinating their students, grooming students. And I just find that troubling. When you hear these sorts of assertions, uh, what are your reactions? Well, my reaction to that is, is that's a political wedge issue. It, it has nothing to do with the truth. It has everything to do with uh, having a political wedge issue to s separate people to be on your side versus another. I mean, <laughs> if teachers were that good at indoctrination, then the students would use the correct there you know, in their sentences. I, I, I look at myself, you know, I'm a skill, I, my entire career, I'm a skill teacher. I had like basically six skills that I taught. Separating main points from supporting information, that way trivia doesn't become a thing. Writing with clarity, you know, uh, analyzing information, those type of things. And every lesson I taught revolved around one of those skills. I had a cultural literacy thing. I think people should recognize people, places, and things just to be a literate person in the world. And so if I was indoctrinating them to anything, it would be uh, let's, let's go ahead and – to write with clarity and let's not waste words and let's not have empty paragraphs. But I don't know what else I could be accused of indoctrinating. In my We the People class, I even in my adult We the People class, it's always so funny um, because I am by my nature look through a historical lens, constitutional lens. And so my adults – and I didn't screen them. So if you sign up for my class, I had I, almost always in the first night I'd get people that say, well, what do you think the founders would think of the government today? And I would be like, I think they would wonder why women were wearing long pants. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and what is that sound coming out of, you know, the thing you're holding in your hand? I'm not a political scientist. I'm an historian by my nature. I look through things through a constitutional and historical lens. I'm not smart enough to do that. There are really good people out there who can theorize, but I'm not that person. So like I've never had an adult take my class uh, even in, and go, well, you're you're trying to indoctrinate. I mean, I I tell people all the time, I give historical receipts. In my 
I don't think my students in my We the People class could tell you who I voted for if you spotted them like a A or B choice. I'm not – I don't – my wife doesn't know who I – always who I vote for. I think voting is personal you know, and I research and I come from a state of Maine that is famously independent. I mean Governor Brennan was an independent. I think he served eight terms or something like that. I mean a Democrat and a Republican in Maine by and large – they don't look very much different from each other all the time. You know, so politically, that's one part. But I'm a historian. So I don't know what I'd be indoctrinating them into. Thinking, great. You know, evaluating, fine. Writing, fine. If, I'm, if I could be accused of indoctrinating them to teach them to be a better writer, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> Bring it on. You know, I'll wear that shirt. Well, I was going to say there was always a debate about you know what's the difference between a historian and historian and a political scientist. Yeah. There are similarities, but there are big differences. There are big too. differences because I studied a lot of political science mm-hmm. in college, and uh, there's history in there, but it's looking as you said through a different lens. It's a way different lens. Uh, we have limited time, so I asked what I came to my mind. Uh, did you have a chance to talk to the community? Anything you'd like to to add before we wrap this up? I don't know if there's anything I'd like to add. I mean. We're getting ready to send our kids back to school. And if you're a parent, I would tell you, uh, be as supportive as you can. But also, the more that you can minimize distractions, those devices in their hands, they're distracting. They can be a tool, but like any tool, you don't need it out all the time. Um, I would encourage adults, subscribe to a newspaper. Read the content. Uh, my adult friends spend their time scrolling on TikTok too. Uh, if you're using TikTok and social media to get your news, I would probably recommend maybe going into something a little bit deeper. That's the thing about the news. You don't always have to agree with it. I'm, I'm talking opinion pages. you know. But I subscribe to a wide variety of them and I read them and sometimes I, I can kind of see the merits and sometimes I don't. But having that mental discourse to do that, you learn stuff by doing that. I'm, I would tell the community, kind of get out of the bubble that you're – if you're in one and just let's bring the press. Let's bring knowledge back to the forefront. Very good advice and I always learn a little something every time I talk to Mike Fossil. You're still the teacher, Mike. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I always enjoy talking well, to you. Well, you know how very much I respect what you do and I always enjoy talking to you too.